several months ago, when I knew that I was speaking today and it was our graduate Sunday, I had a verse that was on the list of verses we were working on, and I really wanted to use it. And so I, I, I've selected a particular verse because it is Graduate Sunday, and this is kind of our pseudo. And so this is like my pseudo-graduate speech. You know, I've never done a graduate ceremony, you know, spoken at one. Next Saturday, I get to do the Greystone Academy graduation. I'm sure all you Greystone people just can't wait. But anyway, I'm going to be doing the Greystone Academy ceremony next Saturday afternoon. I'm really looking forward to that. And Greystone Academy is a homeschool co-op that meets here on our campus throughout the week. And so that's next week. Today, for our time together, find yourself in Exodus 3, okay? And as you're finding yourself there, I'm just going to give us the history that brings us up to Exodus 3, all right? Exodus, you know, the second book of the Bible. In the first book, this is what happened to bring us to this point in our story. So God calls Abraham out of Mesopotamia to a place that he says, I will show you. That's what he says to him. And that place eventually is Canaan. What we now know is Israel, right? And all along the way, he says to Abraham that he promises him land and ancestors. To, and he says, These, I'm going to promise you this land you're standing on when he arrives. And then he says, and I'm going to give you so many ancestors that you cannot, um, you cannot count them. It's not fully um, carried out. Fulfilled. That's what I'm looking for. Abraham's son Isaac comes along. And he makes that same promise to Isaac. Isaac's son Jacob comes along and he continues to say, I've made a promise to your father and your grandfather that you are going to receive land and ancestors more than you can count. With Jacob's son Joseph, who means of a long story, ends up in Egypt. And he ends up in Egypt as the second under command of Pharaoh. And his father is still back in Canaan and a terrible Famine is going through the land. And so Joseph rescues. Again, there's a story to that. But Joseph rescues his family out of Canaan, brings them into Egypt where they live. And they remain there for 400 years. And in that time, Joseph's family multiplies a lot. In Exodus... It says, you don't have to turn this passage just yet. I'm just still building history for you. In Exodus, it says, Then Joseph died, and all of his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. And then it goes on and says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us. But, and so, therefore, they set their taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built for Pharaoh's store cities. And the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. The hard labor of the people did not stem the growth of their nation. 
And so that continued to happen to where Pharaoh took an even more drastic measure. And he says to all the midwives, as the boys are born, kill them. But the midwives didn't obey, and they lived. And so the next thing he says, okay, fine. We'll send my people out. We'll send our soldiers out. We'll take your sons. We'll drown them. That was his way of trying to deal with the growing nation in his own midst. One son escaped, perhaps more of it, the one we know about is Moses. And his mother put him in a basket, put him in the river. And the daughter of Pharaoh finds the child, pulls him from the river, and raises him as her own. And he grows up in the court of Pharaoh as royalty, a son of the king. And so here we are. He has done so. And as he's walking around, as he's, if you know the story, if you know Charlton Heston, you know, if you know the movie, he's out among the people, and he sees an Egyptian shoulder abuse, a soldier abusing a slave, and he decides to take matters in his own hand, and he kills the abuser. And then he finds out that his murder is not a secret, that people know about it. And so in fear, he flees. He just flees. Everything he had, he walks away from in fear. And we find him in chapter 3 and 2, where he has gone out and he has found himself on the dark side or the back side of a desert, many years serving as a shepherd. Chapter 2 of Exodus, verse 23. Here's this passage that says this. Chapter 2, verse 23. Now it came about in the course of many days that the king of Egypt died and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage. And they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard the groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. So Moses has left his people, both sets of them, because he's Egyptian and he's Israeli. He's, he's Hebrew. He's left both of them. Now he's on the, barks of the far, far side of, of, of the desert, and he's a shepherd. And while he's out there, we come into this passage here. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the blazing fire from the midst of a bush, and and he looked and beheld the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside and see this marvelous sight and why this bush is not burned up. And the Lord God saw that he turned aside to look, and God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And then he said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place which you stand is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up to the land that is good and spacious, to a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite, Amorite, Perizzite, 
Hivite and a Jebusite. And now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians have oppressed them. And now this is the clincher for Moses. Therefore, come, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Well, I don't think that that's what Moses thought he was going to get that day when he went out to, feed, to take care of the sheep, do you? Minding his own business, and a bush that is burning but not being consumed catches his attention. Rightly so, wouldn't you say? And then if that's not enough, the bush speaks to him. Again, that would get my attention. And the bush then says to him, come, I'm going to send you back to Pharaoh, the one that you broke his law, the one that you are now a fugitive from, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. In the course of this passage that follows, there's five objections that, Pharaoh, that, uh, that Moses has with this big idea of God. You know, And the first one happens right there in chapter 3. He just says, who am I? Chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. Look at that passage. He says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, certainly I will be with you. And God saying, certainly I'll be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship me at this mountain. Well, that didn't convince him. Because in the very next passage, he says, who are you? (laughs) You know, he said, who am I? And God responds, well, you're nobody, but I'm going with you. And Moses says, okay, that sounds really reassuring. Who are you? And he responds this way, 13 through 15. Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I shall say to them, the God of our fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? And what am I supposed to say to them? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. Well, apparently that wasn't enough for him either, because in chapter 4, verse 1, he continues on, and he says, what if they don't believe me? Moses answers, he says, what if they don't believe me? What if they don't listen to what I have to say? What if they say, you don't know God, he didn't appear to you? That's his third objection. Here's a fourth objection, it's down in verse 10. And right there he goes, I'm I'm not eloquent. I'm not so good with my words. They won't listen to me. I'll mess it up. I won't say the right thing. I won't do it right. I'm not your man. And God answers that. And then finally in verse 13 of chapter 4, he just finally says, he just puts it on the table and says, okay, fine. I can't convince you. I'm just telling you, send someone else. Just send someone else. All right, Lord? That didn't work either. Let's look at each of those objections. And as, and today as I, I address all these, I think that these objections are things that graduates might process as they think about what's coming next for them. But I think that they're also things that we as a church body, we as Christians, anyone as an individual, would also need to consider. And so the very first one he says here is, who am I? Chapter 3, verse 1. I think Moses is living as a failure at this point in his life. 
In chapter 2, verse 11, he thought he was the Savior. He thought he was going to help out the Hebrews, and he's going to kill an, an oppressive taskmaster. And in doing so, what happened was he made himself an enemy of Egypt. But then when the Jews saw him, when the Hebrews saw him, they said, Who are you that you're be Lord over us? And so now he's a no man and he flees. So he's gone from in the, in, in, in the beginning of this book as being the son of Pharaoh to be the beginning of chapter 3 in two short chapters to being a nobody on the backside of the desert tending sheep. He's gone from having the pinnacle of power to the depth of powerlessness. The epitome of prestige and honor to the epitome of lowliness and powerlessness. And he's saying, me? Do you see how it went last time? The Hebrews didn't listen to me then. They rejected me then. And you want me to go back? Moses seems to think that God has called him because of what he's... That he, Moses seems to think that God has called him because he's accomplished something. And he's reminding God, he says, I haven't accomplished anything. You couldn't possibly have picked the right person. And God answers that by saying, I'll go with you. And though there in that is the very next one. Who are you then? Well, the first thing of all, you know, he says, who are you? Well, remember, we're talking about a burning bush that's not being consumed that is talking to him, and he still says, who are you? It's not enough that he's like going, this is pretty amazing. This has got my attention. You know, no one has ever seen this kind of thing before. You know, and it's not like going, I need to know who you are so I can tell everyone about you. Instead, it's more like there's no one out there that will believe that I've seen what I've seen. There's, if I go back and I tell them that there was a burning bush that talked to me and it told me to come here and tell you that we're all going home, they'll go, great, great. White jackets, yeah, come on. We have a room for you. We have a room for you. Thank you so much for coming and helping us. We'll get back to you when we're ready for that kind of help. Thank you so much. Yes. That's what Moses is seeing playing out here. Moses is like going, I don't want to be that one who goes there. But it's really not what God is focusing on. In verse 6, he says, I am the God of the father of, of Jacob, of Abraham, and of daughter of J- Isaac, and the God of Jacob. In verse 14 and 15, he says, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you. God has also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of the fathers, your God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered through all all generations. Chapter 4, verse 5, he says, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of your fathers, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, I am the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. There are two parts of that answer that he just continually repeats throughout this passage. And even it was leading into this passage, and it's further on in the book. There's two parts to this. One, it focuses on the relationship of God to these people. The relationship of God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in particular, it's focusing on, I am a promise-keeping God. And so hundreds of years ago, I made a promise to a man named Abraham that you'd never met. Matter of fact, you're kin to him, but you don't know him. You might have heard about him. And then he had a son, and I took that son aside, and I said, I made a promise to him too. And then he had a son, and he said, I made a promise to him too. This is who I am. He's not speaking about who he was. 
He's not speaking about who he's going to be. God says, this is who I am. I am a promise-keeping God. I am. I don't change. My promises don't change. When I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. You go to them and say, the one who is I am, the one who is a promise keeper, the one who is, is, is made promises and has kept them, I am. That one, that one has sent you, he says to them. But not only that, you know, when he talks about the I am thing, he's talking about being ever-present, ever-existing, constant. He will be with Moses. He will be with the people. He's not just a God of the present. He's not a God of the future. He's not a God of the past. He is a God who is, is, constant, the same, always. I am. I've never changed. I never will. I am sent you. A promise, covenant, keeping God. He says, what if they don't believe me? He goes, well, let me just show you. You can see this part of it. Here, he says this in chapter 4. What if they don't believe me? Chapter 4, verse 1. And then in that passage right there, God says, let me just show you this. Where's your staff? And he gives him three miracles. And he goes, you're going to take these miracles. You're going to go back, and you're going to do these. And people will believe you. And Moses goes, no, that's still not enough. When he does this thing about what if they don't believe me? He really is saying, what if they don't believe in you? What if I throw down miracles and they don't believe me? What's going to happen then? He's still challenging God. He's still pushing back. He still doesn't want to follow. He goes on further. He says this. He says, okay, I don't talk so well. And at this point, God is getting testy with him. He goes, that's okay. I'm going with you. He says, matter of fact, but I'm going to send someone else a brother. Here comes your brother Aaron. He's going to go with you. I'll send him along too. Now, you need to understand that Aaron becomes a burden to him. Because later on in the story, who built the, cow, the golden calf? Aaron did. And so what happens really in essence, in some ways, Moses misses some of the blessing because he did not follow. And then Moses not only misses some of the blessing, but then he also gets the burden of someone else's rebellion because he did not follow. Because he says, I'm not your man. That says, all right, here. here. Here's a solution. It's not a good solution, but here's a solution, and you're going to regret it. And that's what happens. He's, when he says, send someone else, he says, okay, this one, he's going to go to the talking for you, and he's going to go with you. You still have to go, but he's going to go with you. So, When we think about these passages and these observations and these objections, some of us have said them, probably all of us have said them at one time or another. I think about, I don't talk so well. And, you know, we have this pressure, and I hear people say it all the time, well, would you mind telling my friend about the gospel? I'm not, I don't say it right. What did we say last week about when we when we talked about hearing a, a testimony of a changed life. That people respect your changed life. People respect what you believe. People respect how your life has changed. And so for you to come and say, i got to tell you something. I'm not really good at this. 
And I can't explain it really well, but I just need to tell you that one time I figured out that, I just, I, well, I just figured out that, like, I realized that I was a sinner. And I can't tell you everything about that. I just don't understand, but I know I am. And then I realized that I needed Christ. I heard about Jesus. And I placed my faith in him, and, like, he changed my life. That doesn't sound very polished, does it? Does it sound a little true, maybe, though? Does it sound a little genuine, maybe, though? Does it sound like something you said from your heart as opposed to something you taught to say in an evangelism class? The whole thing about, I, need the, I don't have the right words, I don't talk so well. So what? Do you mean it? Is it true about your life even if you don't explain it so well? When you think about this, you say, who, me? Yeah, yeah. God, you know, this is the thing. Graduates, the four of you, the other four or five of you, and the others who might listen to this some other day. This is the real deal. God has plans for you. He has plans for you. You were created with intention and with purpose. You were not a mistake. And where you are in your life is not just because your parents were able to send you a certain school or whatever the case may be. God has intention and purpose in your life, and he funnels those things. He channels those things. He brings them about in such a way to accomplish his purpose in your life. And so high school guys might be really stressed about it, where they're going to go to school and where they're going to get the best training. And then the guys with the associate degree and the undergraduate, they're sweating about grad school or getting their career started. And then the graduate school people, they're trying to figure out how they're going to pay for everything they just did, you know. And, and they're trying to figure out, do I, am I, you know, what am I going to do with the last six or eight years of my life? And how do I start that dream job right now? And who's going to give it to me? But that job as an accountant or designer or a farmer or a lawyer is not the intent of God in your life. When, if you were to meet a burning bush kind of experience, he's not going to say to you, I have a job for you, and it's to be an accountant, and you're going to be really good. And It's not going to be with a huge firm, but I'm going to put you with this one firm, and it's going to be a great job. They're going to give you enough salary to get by, and you'll live in the burbs, you know, and, and this is what I have planned for you. He is not going to say that. That's not his intent. That's not his desire for you. You might get to do that. But his design for you his design for you is this. His design for you is to be his representative. His design for you is to be his ambassador. His design for you is to be his servant, his spokesperson. That's his design for you. That's his intent for you. That's what he wants for you. And if you get to do that as an accountant or an architect, if you get to do that as a doctor or a PT guy, a physical therapist, all that's great. But your intent is not to be a physical therapist. Your intent is not to be an accountant. Your intent is to be his ambassador, his spokesman. That is his design on you. That is his purpose for you. The intent is never an occupation. The occupation is a vehicle to relationships to be able to do this. We were sent to serve. That's part of what we talk about as a church. Equip, send, serve. 
And so the question or the determinative factor of your success in life is not your training, not whether you got into the very best school, not if you got the very best experience, the best internships, or not that you're just so passionate for your job that they ought to hire you because you really like it. The determinative question about your success in life has to be this. It's your passion for Jesus. That, that right there, will carry you when your job stinks. That right there will carry you when you don't have a job. And some of you know that from your own experience. That right there will carry you even when your job is going great. It's your passion for Jesus that, is, that he wants for you. The question is not who I am or that I should go. Really what happens is it's not that at all. It's who is sending me. God said that to him in the very beginning. Who, who am I? And he goes, it doesn't matter. I'm going with you. And you can never pull a Moses on God and say, I can't serve you because I don't talk well, because I'm flawed. You can never say, I can't serve you because there's someone else who's better trained. You can never say that there's, that, that there's a reason for not serving him. You can never say that, that I'm unemployed. I can't serve you right now. You can't say, I'm retired. I don't serve you anymore. You can't say, I'm too busy. I've got two kids, four kids, six kids, ten kids. You can't say, I don't talk well. You can't say, I have a disease. I can't serve you. Because he says, I'm going with you. And in all of that stuff, I work with all that stuff. I work through all that stuff. And that stuff is even the very vehicle for me working through you. Because what's going to happen is you're going to go to other unemployed people. And there you can be passionate for me. What's going to happen is you're going to be retired. And you're going to be passionate around them the way Tom and Marilyn are. You're going to be passionate in the lunchroom at your architecture firm. You're going to be passionate at whatever stage you're life in, emotional, physical, otherwise. You can be passionate there. And God says, I can use you right there. You can never say that you're flawed. You're too flawed for God to use you. He says, you're perfectly and you're, you're fearfully and wonderfully made in Psalm. Matter of fact, just on, Martin, on May the 19th, Michelle Obama uh, spoke at Tuskegee University there. And she made this comment there that I would agree with, but not in the same way that she said it. I have different intent. She said to them in the course of her speech there, she said, Graduates, you have everything you need to succeed right now. You have it. You don't need any more. Some of them need a job. But what she's talking about is the self-determination. What she's talking about is that, that, that this belief that inside of you is everything you need to succeed. And in a worldly sense, that might be true to some degree or another. But grads, you and I know. People, you and I know. Crossing, you and I know. That to know and to love Christ gives us everything that we need 
to succeed. And that that will carry us in the worst circumstances of life. That that is what we need to succeed. MIT won't cut it all the time. Big salary won't cut it all the time. Great experience, greater credentials, great resume, great references won't cut it all the time. It's who sent us? God. It's that he is going with us that makes us successful, that makes us succeed in spite of everything, success or failure, that happens to us in this life. In that passage that we had a moment ago at the end of the video, Deuteronomy 31, 8, it says, It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. It is the God who says that I will never leave you or forsake you. It is the God who says that I am the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the promises I made to them are the promises I made to you. And I kept those promises. I'm keeping these promises today going forward. In speaking to Joshua, he said, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua 1.9. So Michelle Obama and I, we differ on this point in that how you need, what you need to succeed is not what you have right now. It's who you might have right now. It's who's sending you right now. It's Jesus. So while the same words might be said to you, you'll have everything you need to succeed, not because of what you've accomplished, not because of what you've learned, not because of what you've experienced, but because God is going with you, will not forsake you, and will work through you. The one thing that is most important to the success in this life is to be a servant of Jesus. To know him, to love him, to serve him with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind. College graduates, high school graduates, tech school graduates, doctorates, crossing people. Let's seek that in this life. And then as Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, and all these other things will be added to us. Let's pray.